0: This is Sending Signals, a show about music and creativity. I'm your host, Matt Royal. Welcome to the show. Our guests this month, solo artist and front man of A Hold Steady, Craig Thin. And Roller Mania comes to Sending Signals, Bass City Rollers singer Les McEwan. Craig is a songwriter raised in Minneapolis before relocating to New York in 2000. Craig helped form the band The Hold Steady in 2003, who have released seven studio albums in that time. Finn also launched a solo career in 2012, and this year released his fourth solo album I Need A New War. It's an album full of Craig's trademark detailed lyricism. The songs are layered with telling details, but he knows what to leave unsaid too. It details his characters feeling dwarfed by the city they live in and struggling to be equal to the problems they're facing. It's a really great record. I suggest checking out the opening track, Blankets, for a sense of what Craig can do. Craig took some time out on tour in the UK to chat to the show, and it's an honour to have him on the podcast. Hey, it's Craig. Hey, Craig, it's Matt. How are you? I'm alright. How are you, mate? I'm good. Good, thanks. Cool. Uh, did you have a good set? at rough trade?
1: Yeah, it was great. It was great. It was. It sounded really good in there, and was good, good turnout. So I was really happy with it. Excellent. Kind of nice to play one at one p.m. Sometimes lunchtime, you know, <laughs> rather than waiting around all day.
0: Yeah, I saw you play there. Um, I guess with the first album.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. With just me and a pedal steel, I guess probably.
0: Yeah, it was quite stripped back. Yeah, yeah. So we've met a couple times before I was actually your support act when you played South End.
1: Oh, right, right. Uh, Kids with Torches, right? <laughs> That's Kids right, with... yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah.
0: So you have a new record, I Need a New War. Um, it, in some ways, this record reminds me of the new Tom York album, not like sonically, right. but just in that it feels like your most fully realized solo record, it feels like even if your parent band was done this it feels like this has proved that, it just feels like the most complete, like m- musically and your vocals are like a step up mm-hmm. um, and it just feels like the most fully realised solo record, is that how it feels to you?
1: Yeah, I mean I think we're kind of building towards it, I mean, I, you know I've been saying it's, it's the third of a trilogy and you know what I mean by that partially is we started recording, uh, you know, started recording with Josh Kaufman and Joe Russo in um, 2015 to make, or 2014 to make the Faith in the Future, which came out in 2015. And we've kind of just kept recording, you know. We've kind of just, you know, the same group of people roughly has just kind of kept making music. Even, you know, when we get one record done, we're already working on the next one. Maybe even before the the first one comes out. So. We've been, it's kind of been a five-year um, process of getting, you know, working with the same people and getting to know each other, and kind of building um, a sound, but also, you know, comfort with the people and uh, an idea of what what this music can be and what it can, um, what it could be. So it's kind of a, a fully realized by a group of people that, um, you know, and of what what this sound is. And I, in that sense, I think we've kind of like. Um, built on the the first two to make this one and so i do agree it's the most realized
0: yeah um the the title itself i need a new war i i take it to mean sort of in the framework of the album sort of from like a character perspective as in like i don't expect everything to come easy like i don't mind working for it but it shouldn't be this hard and i need (laughs) i need this thing to get easier and then I can just work on work towards something else that's not easy either but just different. <laughs>
1: right, right. Is that there? I mean sort of, yeah, I think in, in in some way I think to me it's also that you know he's looking for something to a fight to engage with, you know, something to feel passionate about and feel um uh you know feel engage with and feel strongly and um a a sense of purpose in some way. I mean, and that, um, the title comes from the song granted Kalina and, um, which is about, you know, which refers to, uh, Ulysses S. Grant, who, uh, was a civil war general. And, um, in that, in the war grand found purpose. And I think a lot of these characters are looking for purpose or looking for something to kind of save them. Um, so to me, that's what it means. Um, and then there's also the, uh, you know, sort of the double meaning of the, you know, political meaning of like, you know, when we, when we go to war, we, um, you know, the economy improves. (laughs) And so, you know, sort of a dark, a dark humor there of, uh, you know, what, what could happen or what does happen.
0: Huh? The song "A Bathtub in the Kitchen" has this deals with this concept of like enablers, I guess, which yeah. is something that we're all like we're all confronted with it on some level. Whether it's like whether to give money to someone in the street, you know. But, yeah, yeah. So in this instance, it's like an acquaintance asking the character for money, but you know it's just a stopgap solution. But then right. there's this twist where the narrator feels somewhat indebted to this like lecherous friend. You know I can't keep saying thank you yeah have you yeah. ever have you ever been in a have you ever been in that situation where you felt indebted to someone and it's just dragged out for, for longer than it should have been
1: absolutely there there's people i mean especially the older you get you know you you have people that you know maybe were in a position to help you and did, but you know you can kind of you kind of get beyond you know to a place where um they there you know maybe maybe where you once saw them as a uh as as the you know someone to admire you 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 know 20, 10 15 20 years down the line you're like oh, okay well that person hasn't really grown um since then and you know now they're they're really in, you know in a you You have a different perspective on where they 're at, and I think that that's what that song's about. You know that guy, Francis, was able to help the narrator when he moved to New York moved to the city but Francis hasn't grown then since then and in in the fifteen or twenty years that um the narrator's been there he's 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 you know solidified his place there, and um you know the tables have turned in that sense, and that's kind of what the song's about
0: yeah um this kind of you you described it as a as a trilogy um it, it's kind of the trilogy of empathy isn't it it's like a shift to more empathetic songwriting
1: absolutely yeah i mean in 2013 my mom passed away and uh, i felt like the songs that i wrote um right in the year that followed which became faith in the future were really kind of a mark of a, a kind of a new empathetic um uh feeling in my songs you know and 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 something that i was that came naturally but also that i started to concentrate on and, and um I've been saying that the Hold Steady, so many of the songs in the Hold Steady are about people who are actively making bad decisions, decisions, actively pursuing bad ideas. And so when they screw up, you don't necessarily always feel sorry for them. Um, but in a lot of the people in these songs, in these last three records, are trying to do the right thing and just um, still having a hard time keeping their head above water. So there is an empathy, and there is a sympathy for them. Um, and I think that's, you know come through in the work and i think that's you know probably reflective of my headspace um as a person as well
0: How has sort of the grief process been for you is it taken like a, a a long long time to process or was it something that came out quite quick
1: yeah it, i mean it's, it's still always there i mean it's still always there it's not it's not the um it's not the crisis that it was in 2014, you know, yeah. um, where I, you know, and literally the, the, the first record the you know, the first record, the faith in the future anyways, um, was, was a lot of those songs were written when I was really punching the clock, just because if I didn't, I would just sit home all day and I would just say like, I'm going to write, I'm going to write. And I'd go to a space and write. And, the, um, that batch of songs largely get, you know, maybe this whole trilogy just got started by that, that action of just um, really pushing to you know get get out of my head. Um, so um, and it's still there, but obviously it's it's less it's less all and cumbersome. It's it's there's moments of each day where you you know you might reflect, but it's not always 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 with you.
0: Yeah, is your dad still around?
1: Ah, uh, yeah, he is.
0: How's he doing? So
1: that's good. He's good. He's good. He's really and he's very healthy and uh, everything's yeah real good there. So. So you know, there's still a connection to family.
0: Is he the sort of dad that comes out to shows if you're in town?
1: Ah, uh, yeah. He'll, if I go to Minneapolis, he'll come, and uh, and then uh, we, but we hang out. We go skiing every year, and uh, we, you know, he'll come out to New York and hang out. So yeah, we we're definitely you know in good touch and, and pretty close.
0: I wanted to go back to your description of Hold Steady characters as people making bad decisions, following him through to the natural mm-hmm. conclusion. Um, I wondered, did you ever have you ever felt like you glorified bad behaviour too much in The Hold Steady, like a song like Massive Nights? If you played it on the piano in a minor key, it's basically I've Loved These Days by Billy Joel, but it's like a it's like a big sing along rock song. It kind of sounds aspirational.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I I think that there's, I mean, I do think that there's, it's you know, a time for celebration, and I, in that case, I think that that is what we're you know. It is a time that song is is of a time for celebration, but you know i I think with that, I've always tried to write about the hangover um, as much as I write about the partying. Um, so I, I I think in that I, I feel a um, kind of a responsibility in that sense, and I try to try to keep reminding people that for for all the celebrating there might be, there might be uh, consequences in a hangover. There is certainly a celebration, and there's a revelation you know a revelatory kind of feel, but um, you know there are there are some real some real uh, people do do you know do uh, feel consequences for their actions, yeah throughout the catalog um,
0: a friend of mine wanted me to ask how much Uh, in terms of the characters how how many of them are are real and uh, you know whether like names are changed to protect the innocent etc
1: there's very little that's a one-to-one relationship you know with someone like it's not you know i did not change the name and, and and tell the story of another person but it's 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 honest in the sense that it's you know they're composites and they're people who you know, that, that I've known who've done things like that. And, uh, you know, I think that part of what my job is to do is change enough details and change, change the story enough or change, you know, change things around to make it new. Um, and make but also keep it honest as something that could happen. And, um, you know, so a lot of these things are people are, are similar to, uh, people I've known or, um, you know, type of people I've known. But uh without it being without it being, you know, a retelling of of a friend's life.
0: Yeah. You used to have um a specific set of characters that would sort of come out uh, across the albums. Um and then yeah. you, I remember you saying you wanted to muddy the waters a bit. Are those characters still around in the songs? Um I mean do they ever appear in your solo work or do you see that as a distinct set of characters?
1: I see that as a distinct other world. Um yeah um, and, you know, I think I'm always kind of creating new characters. I'm more interested now in creating new characters, uh, more and more new characters because I think it's, I think it's a big world. And, uh, I think, you know, to, to write about the same people all the time it can, could be limiting, can be limiting. Yeah. So I think we're always kind of introducing new people and new, new scenes.
0: I mean, I guess it's, it's a, like a trade-off because in some ways the sort of the deep dive you could take across sort of forensically following characters and tracing references is like part of the, you know, the fan appeal. But yeah. And it limits you creatively as well. So it's it's like a trade-off, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's a trade-off. I mean, there are people that would love that, but I don't even know that everyone would love that. So um, I, I think it's a trade I'm willing to take.
0: Yeah. Um, is creativity – I get the impression you approach creativity as a as a job – nowadays you like sit down and do it as opposed to waiting for it to sort of come to you 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 like make an effort to sort of have a routine where you sit and work
1: absolutely i mean you know i sit down to write and i you know uh i write for a few hours or you know 2 hours and try to do that as much as possible but then come back to it and i think really more and more especially as i get older the editing process is where kind of the magic happens more so than the original burst
0: do you have to force yourself into new situations in order to to feed it or can is your imagination sort of that good that you can sit in your apartment and and it will it will come you know
1: well, I feel like I have to live, you know, but, um, I mean, travel and that kind of thing, but also keeping yourself open to art, you know, what it, whether it be, you know, visual art or reading or, or other music, um, all those things and keeping, you know, keeping stimulus, stimulus coming in, you know, whether it's walking into new neighborhoods you haven't been into or, you know, or traveling or, uh, um, or just doing something new. I think that that, that can keep things coming. And I think that's, that's important. I think that more so than I, I think you have to make time for that.
0: Yeah. The first record you bought was Bay City Rollers. Is that right?
1: That is correct. Greatest hits.
0: Um, the other guest on this episode is going to be Les McKeown. I
1: am. a, am still a huge fan. I, uh, it, it kicked off a life, lifelong, you know, love of music. Uh, and, Uh, I still can sing most of their songs from most of their albums. And uh, I even followed them, um, actually, beyond less, into... when they became just the Rollers, they made a record called Elevator. That's really interesting, kind of a new wave record. I believe they played their instruments on that. It's a really interesting record, but Les wasn't on that one. But uh, the one before that's pretty good too. The one um, that's oh, the name's escaping me, but the first song's called Another Rainy Day in New York City. Oh, it's called Strangers in the Land. The album is and uh, yeah, you know, and 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 I love that stuff. And you know, um, it's funny. A few years later, I got into punk rock and. You know, from the uh, vantage point of um, where I sit now, I I can very much see the two together. I mean, Bay City Rollers has a, you know, very sing-along, chanty, kind of, you know, you tend to be three chords, four chords. And to go from that to the Ramones really isn't that big of a jump.
0: I think the Ramones were fans, weren't they? The, yeah, the they songs. were. Yeah.
1: yeah, they absolutely were. And uh it's uh yeah, it's real cool music. I mean I, I also read some of the books that have come out more recently and there's some kind of harrowing stuff in there, um, which I feel terrible um for him and for the other bandmates, um, because they really uh had some a very abusive manager. Um that, that that was awful. Um but you know um that music still is uh, awesome to me and uh uh that's cool. I look forward to listening to it.
0: He seems in a good place and he um he kind of really stands you know he still thinks you know Shalallah is like one of the greatest songs ever. <laughs> you know he still he really yeah. sort of stands stands behind it, you know. One thing i I really love when I when I hear you interviewed and it and it comes across a, a you know across your writing as well is how important you know your personal music history is and the concept of scenes and you know you you talking about oh you know the green tour rem i like when i decided i'd catch like a few shows in a row that personal history you know that becomes like your past and how kind of magical and important that is to like your identity you know
1: yeah, yeah. I mean that is that is I mean, music changed my life in that sense. It gave me a place to feel good and feel um you know, feel feel like I belonged and uh you know, I've always found magic in music and uh and you know, I try to I, that I do try to reflect that in my own my own art and um and I and I continue to find joy in music, um, outside of my own and I think that's I think it's important to kinda even even as a songwriter, keep in touch with that, and keep in uh, keep aware of that, and keep kind of a beat on that.
0: Is it harder to be excited about music in your late forties? I mean, I, I've said this to a few other people I've interviewed that, like, already I can see a. I mean, I'm still hugely passionate about music, but compared to how Accounting Crow's record made me feel when I was. 19 or something there's not really a comparison now at 36 much as i adore music but i think your body chemistry just doesn't allow the same depth of feeling have you noticed a change even going into your late 40s or i
1: mean because you've seen i've seen a lot so you know like there's certain bands that you know if you if you if you're as old as you know if you're 48 you know and you, you there's a band that you know comes out that sounds a lot like a band who liked When you were 23, you probably aren't going to be exactly as into them as at 48 as you were in 23. But there's still, you know, uh, bands that come out every year that I get, you know, massively excited about. Um, The Fontaines DC this year were a band that, like, uh, I'm I still am blown away by their record and I love their live show I saw and uh, that's really exciting music to me. But, you know, I mean, as I get older, I think that the things that are attractive to me are people with a big catalog, you know? You know, you get more and more into Dylan and Springsteen and Neil Young just because they've done so much. Yeah. And uh, you can kind of keep going back to it. And it's, you know, some you know an indie band that put out two records and then went away um, does seem a little less impressive, you know, <laughs> like as you get older.
0: I sense that you... Are a Billy Joel fan, but you're afraid to say you're a Billy Joel fan.
1: <laughs> well, it's a complex relationship because it's schmaltzy music at times. But I, no, I am a fan. I, I can say proudly, it's a that's actually in a whole steady kind of a, a dividing line. Ted and I are into it, and other guys aren't. Um, so, uh, but yeah, we 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 like them. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's it's. Uh, it, I mean, that's music we very much grew up on. So.
0: I mean, if you can defend Bay City Rollers, I don't see that Billy Joel a problem, man.
1: Exactly, exactly. That's, what, that's what, I feel that same way.
0: And Songs from the Attic is one of the great live albums. If you take off Captain Jack, <laughs> it's a great album.
1: I like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I like 52nd Street a lot. That, that one's a really good one to me.
0: Do you go and catch Madison Square Garden shows? Because I guess he's always in the neighborhood playing, isn't he? No,
1: no, but I did get my, uh, my girlfriend. I got tickets for my girlfriend and her sister one year to go. Um, I've seen them a few times, and they're really expensive too. So, you know, they made a good gift for her, but uh, I, haven't, I haven't caught one of those.
0: I was in New York uh, last year, and I wanted to go and see him, and I ended up getting a ticket behind the stage. You're actually really close. You get a great view of a band and he's like he faces you for some of the show anyway. So I found that was like a good compromise to sort of get in, you know, a little bit cheaper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What's going to be next? If this is if this is like a trilogy, are you planning to just shake things up? (laughs) <laughs> i haven't
1: really exactly know what. yeah i mean right now i'm touring with this band uh the town controllers that i put together i'm really happy with the band so i'd like to keep doing more shows with them it feels like we're finding something with that band uh that's really interesting and uh you know it's it's kind of loose and it um it allows me to do certain things live that uh that's really exciting so i, I want to continue with that and um but, you know, I'm figuring it out. I, I didn't, you know, I'm not declaring this, uh, you know, the tr- by calling it a trilogy, I wasn't saying, like, I can't do any more music with these people, but it felt like it was a time to kind of stop and reflect on these three records together, and we'll figure out next year. I've been so busy um, this year, you know, we'll probably figure out when we get off the road uh, what happens next.
0: When you see bands like The National and The War on Drugs, sort of taking a step up to like arenas and head like are you ever puzzled about why it didn't quite happen for hold steady like have you worked <laughs> out what what the difference um, is
1: you know i don't i haven't t- thought about it a ton i mean i mean I, I guess i think that maybe our music is probably a little bit more um slightly more abrasive maybe due to the vocals but um uh also maybe um you know, in the case of something like some of that music is very. I, I think like there is a bit of a reward in 2019 for being sort of streamy. You know, yeah. something that 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 can be played at a coffee shop and not feel like someone's yelling in your ear. You know, <laughs> and uh, and so I think that that you know I, I feel like as as trends go that 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 is something that tends to be a little bit rewarded i know those are bands i both i love both those bands but um i I think maybe that is some part of it
0: yeah huh well listen i'll let you go man thank you so much for talking oh
1: thanks for having me no thanks for having great questions
0: and finally is your dog okay Rosalita?
1: yeah she's wonderful good
0: Uh, yeah i love her she's so good i miss her yeah i bet have a great time in europe man and thank um, you thanks so much craig take care man all right thanks take care bye. bye I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, please subscribe if you haven't already and tell your friends. Also, feel free to let me know what you think about each episode. You can find me on Twitter at Signals Podcast and on Instagram at Sending Signals Podcast. Thank you. My next guest fronted what became one of the biggest bands in the world for a while. Les McEwan joined the Bay City Rollers in time for their 1974 debut, Rolling. In fact, he was technically the only official member to appear on the album, the label preferring to use session musicians. I'll admit, I wasn't initially sure about having Les on the show. The Rollers are not really for me, but I thought he would have a story, and I thought it'd be fascinating to get an insight of what it's like to be inside the whirlwind, even for just a while. In the end, it also dovetailed nicely with my interview with Craig Finn, who's a fan of the band. And Les was good company. Enjoy our chat. Hello? Hello, hello. Is that Les? Yep. Good. It's uh, Matt here. Hi Matt, how you doing? Not too bad. How are you, mate? I'm okay. I'm having a
2: relaxing day off kind of thing.
0: So where, uh, (laughs) where are you? Hackney.
2: In london oh
0: okay um do you still live do you live in edinburgh these days or do you live in london
2: well i haven't lived in edinburgh since 76 so
0: huh.
2: uh but i did We go back there at 82 for two years when we gave birth to our little boy's son yeah yeah had to be scottish huh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so where do you live now in hackney you live in hackney yeah where do you live uh, I'm down in Southend on Sea. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, Westcliff area. So, uh, yeah, not not too far. So your your son was born in eighty two. I was born in eighty three. So um, wow. So uh, is he still in the country? Is he around?
2: Yeah, he still lives with us. He's you know he knows he knows where, <laughs> he knows when he's <laughs> yeah he knows he gets up yeah he's just like he's mad but um I love him yeah um, yeah he's and all the Bitcoin stuff and all that kind of stuff, making yourself a little fortune. So,
0: Wow. Are you ready for some podcast action? Yeah. <laughs> what, 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 what is that? <laughs> <laughs> um, so ostensibly, I guess you're promoting a a new uh, basic yep. rollers collection called Gold. That's right, yeah. Um, do you have uh, any, uh, were you involved in like the track selection for it? Or is that something? Is it kind of something that's presented to you that you sort of sign off on? Um, how does that process work?
2: Yeah, exactly what you just said. It's a kind of sign off on the the, the people who um, compiled it are in the record company, um, and they um, asked me if I would uh, help promote it, which of course I'm pleased to do uh, because it's um, it's my history, and uh, you know I'm on my forty five year forty five year tour now, so. Yeah. I'm playing up and down the country, it's very, very hard. There's lots of long journeys involved and um, I'm starting to feel it. I'm 63 now, so I'm starting to feel the the burn, if you know what I mean.
0: (laughs) Is it easier touring Um, over here compared to, say, Australia? I know you've been to Australia a lot and stuff.
2: um... Well, I'm going back to Australia this year, but um, to answer your question, it's a lot easier for me to go to Australia and tour because it's all laid out for me. They have booked the hotels, they've booked the equipment, they've booked the gigs, they've booked the transport, they've booked everything. All I need to do is turn up and sing, which I love to do. Over here, I do everything myself. So I book the the gigs and I try my best to route things the best I can, um, depending on which venues are available and what stays I make sure that I book the band, the band well in advance, so I'll give them a year's notice sort of thing of what I'm doing. With minor changes involved, of course, with people, you know, gigs might. Um, um, actually, some people have uh, went bankrupt. <laughs> but um, so sometimes you have to change your plans slightly. But most of all, I work about a year, nine months to a year ahead and book everything, all the hotels, the transport, get everything, everybody in place. So that when it comes to doing the gig, all I've got to think about is just singing and uh, watching my itinerary
0: that I made a year ago. (laughs) Yeah, I get the impression, though, that you like the control that that brings, though. I think I like it because I had no
2: control when I was famous, if you know what I mean. Everything, everything, every single little thing was controlled back in the day when I was, um, you know, when we were having all our success. 74, 75, 76, that kind of thing. And I didn't like that at all because you, you you felt, you know, you were always kind of wondering what's happening next. I don't know because only the boss knows, if you know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, I thought one of the things that would calm me down and make me happier when I was touring and, and make the whole process more enjoyable would be to get control of that. It's a hassle. It's a real you know it really is a hassle but I kind of get a kind of deep satisfaction from getting things right if you know what I mean even like it's like you know when you want to book your holiday and these days you don't go to a travel agent you go online you say right okay I'm gonna take that flight in the afternoon because I don't want to get up that early and you know, okay, and then I want to stay in that hotel because it's near the beach, and I don't want to be walking. And I want to go to that restaurant, you know, and all these kind of things. You got your own bespoke kind of way of doing things,
0: sure.
2: And, and and that's what I like. And so it's just a a more complicated version of booking your holiday. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um. So when you were in the kind of madness of Roller Mania did it did the, did being in the Bay City Rollers feel like a creative thing or did it feel like a job did you feel more like an actor how, how did how did it feel to you well when I was
2: very very young I always remember I was always singing everywhere my mum was a uh, the, the lead voice in the Belfast women's choir she had a beautiful full set of voice and I think uh, me being the the, the kid out of four brothers, I got kind of like extra attention, you know, things had settled down by the time I was born. So I got extra attention and I got a lot of time with my mum. And, you know, she used to sing around the house, the Irish rebel songs and all that kind of stuff. Huh. And and we'd end up um, singing together and, and, and I just thought, oh, this is just brilliant. And when I was, um, you know, I, I had a milk round with uh, St. Cuthbert's uh, horse and cart kind of thing. And um, I would be singing everywhere, you know, like listening to the radio on a Sunday, the Luxembourg charts and all that kind of stuff. And I'd try and listen to all the words, get them right and sing. And I, and people used to sing in Milk Boy, you know what I mean? When I had my paper round, it was a singing paper boy, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I just used to be singing all the time. And people used to say to me, well, you could, you know, you could be on stage and all that stuff. So I got that in my mind. Um, and by the time I was invited to leave school at 15, all I could do and want in my life was to be a singer in a band. And that's what I did. I uh, joined a band when I was 15 and one quarter. <laughs> huh. And I joined a band called Threshold, a singer. Yeah. And uh, we started to do all the hits that were out at the time, All Right Now, and Smoke on the Water, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, we got quite popular, you know, we... My dad was a tailor, and he used to. We used to give him these designs to to, to make uh, these outrageous kind of stage costumes. And one day, I was playing Saturday night in the top venue in Edinburgh called Americana in Bridge in Edinburgh, and uh, Tam Payton and uh, Eric Faulkner came along and asked me to join the Basic Rollers, who at that time were a one-hit wonder band. They had a, a hit with uh, "Keep on Dancing" way back three years ago in 1971. And um, I thought, yeah, well, that's a step up, let's go. Yeah. And um, then it wasn't that long, I was revoicing um, that old song, Keep On Dancing, I revoiced Remember, Shang-A-Lang, all that kind of thing, Saturday night. And, uh, you know, we got on a television show called Cracker Jack, and next thing all the kids saw us and liked us, sat buying our records, we went into the charts, next thing we are on top of the pops. Next thing, you know, well, it all kicked off and we were, like, super busy for the next three years.
0: Yeah. So to go back to the question, did it feel like a creative time?
2: Oh, I'm so sorry.
0: Okay. Yeah, I, I think, for me, it was an adventure.
2: Um uh, Although I kind of felt it was, you know, obviously a, a kind of manipulated situation because there was a manager there who was manipulating things, but... I thought, well, that's what managers do, and 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 we all have a part to play in this uh, chaos. So I played my part basically, um, and I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. It was an adventure. It was great going out, and I see you smiling, screaming in faces. All they wanted to do was like grab you. I don't know what they'd do if they got a hold of you, but um, you know they they'd wanted, they wanted just screamed after you and all that kind of stuff. It was a little bit annoying because. You know, no matter how big a PA system we got, the, the screams would always be louder. Um, but you went in, went. I went out there and, and did my part, performed my part, and uh, and I enjoyed it because that's what I always wanted to do. Um, and it was only later on, like these days, or the last thirty years, that I really uh, started to enjoy it even more because, yeah, I, it's great because I'm I, I realised the kind of impact even. Um, something is—I um, don't know what people think about boy bands, but the the impact that we have or we have had on um, young people's um, development, kind of thing, it's quite deep and uh, interesting. You know, it, it really is. Yeah, it really is um, well, strong because they've been coming and paying like thirty pound a ticket to come and see me sing for the last forty-five years. So I'm quite happy about that.
0: Did you consider yourselves to be, or in hindsight, do you consider yourselves to have been a boy band? Because I know that the, the first album, it was Session Players, wasn't it? And then...
2: Interestingly enough, I'm the only base roll around the first album. Yes. <laughs> but uh, I think looking back on things and the way things developed and people's um, attitude to me, of, I mean the band's attitude to me, um, and the kind of cost that kind of environment it caused was basically all down to the fact that I was on the first album and they won and there was a whole lot of publicity at the time about the rollers don't play in their own records and all that kind of stuff and I would imagine and I do actually think that those guys that really really hurt them in a very very deep way that you know we are kind of pointless and useless and all that kind of stuff and they kind of Effect that had on them it was trying to well, we need to prove ourselves as musicians, and that took on um, a variety of different guises um, and people try to do it, it, The ultimate one was when um, when they wanted we were at the top of the charts in the USA. We had a number one hit single. There was um, all the best songwriters knocking at our door to provide number one songs, and the band. Um, well, well, could say it was Eric and Woody and well with the band, um they chose to write and produce their own songs, so it uh, ended up it was it was uh me and them kind of situation. they wanted to do that I didn't want to do that. I thought I'd have a bit of chance on my own than uh with with the band writing and producing their own songs and uh, so anyway, I left the band, they got a new singer and the albums that they did write and produce bombed. And I went on to do my thing. It was a bit of a split up. It was, you know, it, it was convoluted. It was, I was stopped from getting record deals and all that kind of stuff. They wanted to stop me performing and being out there. There was a whole lot of legal problems. So not too unlike uh, what little Robbie went through not so long ago, but he managed to um, get some good financial backers that would help him financially um, beat the the legal suits that he had,
0: but didn't um weren't Eric and Stuart writing quite a lot of the songs on the albums anyway by the sort of second third fourth albums was that not the case
2: well well they were actually yeah absolutely um they weren't coming up with any hit material I mean <clears throat> they did write Money Honey which did go into the charts but I think it kind of went into the charts I'm not trying to denigrate um Woody and um Eric's um, let's say, um prowess on writing songs but it was at a time when the rollers could have you know i don't know could have turned blah black sheep and it would have went in the charts and these days i see the effect of a song like money honey it's not a popular song to play live it's not a it's not a shuffle basically <laughs> um and basically the basic rollers were a shuffle band sort of thing I, I i don't know um yep they wrote a lot of great songs in fact a lot of the songs that i'm started to do now on tour. You know, Let's Go, Teenage uh, teenage Dream, all those sort kind of things that Eric um, and Woody wrote. I mean, Eric was mostly the writer, really. And when I go to Japan, I do Strangers in the Wind uh, and, and lots of st- songs from the last album we did, which was very popular in Japan. You know, Don't Let the Music Die, all those kind of songs. The Japanese fans love it.
0: Um, it's just even, even say, like, uh, second album, Once uh, once Upon a Star. Like, you look at the writing credits, and like, The Disco Kid is Faulkner Wood, uh, La Belle Jean is Faulkner Wood, Angel Babies is Faulkner Wood. You've got yeah. a co-write on there. You did, um, co-wrote Hey Beautiful Dreamer and Marlena. Um, so
2: yeah, I mean, there's a lot of band stuff there, and I'm only you know, over the last 30 years, I'm only um, finding out how good songs are, but they weren't chosen as uh, singles during, during our peak period right. and that, was, that could have been for a lot of reasons I mean um, maybe uh, if the people involved with us i.e. The, the the record company people had more faith in the songs the band were producing maybe it could have been different I mean like when you look back at the Beatles career they they started with covers they started their, their hit career with covers and then somehow they were able to uh, get their own songs released uh, well the basic was unfortunately weren't in that position I don't know well I actually got a good idea of as a management because um, you know the manager was just out for a buck and didn't really care about uh, musicians what are they
0: I guess maybe um, the monk the monkeys might have been a good parallel of like a band that to a degree was sort of Slightly kind of controlled. I, I hesitate to use the word manufactured, <laughs> but then they kind of morphed into sort of taking more ownership of what they did. You know. Uh, well,
2: I mean, don't disrespect my monkeys because I love them. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, uh, David Jones became a good friend of ours. Um, uh, well, of course he's passed away a long time now, but um, every now and again we do a little dedication to him on stage and do Daydream Believer. They had some great songwriters. The thing is, you get famous. And maybe some people think, well, I'm famous now, and the songs I write should be as famous as I am, kind of thing. But there are people around who are songsmiths, if you know what I mean, like them And that is what they do. I mean, a song like Shine a Light. I mean, that is just like the best basic or song ever to me. Huh. Um, and there's no way, um, well, no way so far that you could get Eric or Woody or somebody like that to write a song like that. Um, as charismatic as it is, it just captures youth and well everything about the basic rollers is all rolled up in Lang I think. And Saturday night, those kind of songs. Right. They they exude youth and you know, spontaneity and all that kind of stuff. But they were not written by the band. I'm not trying like I said before, it, it is there is two worlds here. There is the songwriting professional world, and there's the band who are, uh, to, to some degree, amateurs. But the songs that um, Woody and uh, Eric wrote, and some of them that I were involved with, I still love them. I mean, Beautiful Dreamer, all that kind of stuff. We do that stuff in Japan, and I love doing it because we only get a chance to do that once a year kind of thing. Um, over here, you could do it, but we want to hear... The hits, you know, that everybody wants to hear the hits because your audience here in the UK is mostly the fans that have followed you all these years, and some, uh, you know, let's say strangers to the world, and and they want to hear songs that they kind of remember. So if you want to try and satisfy everybody, you've got to kind of do your hits kind of thing.
0: So it's not you're not sort of too worried about trying to kind of reframe what you did in order to appear perhaps more credible in from like a rock critic perspective or anything like you're like, yeah. you're, you're kind of happy with the legacy of what you did. I, I,
2: I think I agree with you. I, I'm happy with the legacy because that is my persona when I'm doing the basic lore stuff. I mean, I do other things that don't get any publicity But you know, I've got other projects that I work on. Um, and, you know, I'm quite happy kind of like getting the satisfaction of, Entertaining a crowd at my local social that's on like some kind of weird, groovy night, and I get up there and I sing something that's, you know, like maybe a bluegrass song or something, and people like it. So I get my satisfaction out of the audience, really. Yeah. I'm not too bothered about accolades of this guy's cool or this guy's not cool and all that stuff because my audiences, wherever I perform, always seem to like what I'm doing. Yeah,
0: you can get bogged down in that stuff, and I think the the younger version of me would be very would be like very bothered about you know songwriters being in bands and that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah. as you get older, I think you realise that like, well, if the end result, if the end product is great and people love it, then what's the problem? You know, um, <laughs> exactly. it, it, it takes a while to sort of adjust your mindset on that. I think I I wondered how you are in yourself these days because like I know you sort of fell down a rabbit hole with drink etc and uh, I wondered are are you sort of in a good, are you in a good place these days? Yeah I
2: am Uh, I mean of course when you get older you start to think about um, oh what's that pain in my, you know on my left side I've got to go to the doctor you know (laughs) because youth is is with me anymore so as you get older, i'm thinking I'm, my head is like i don't know 25 years old but my body is 63 years old so you do start to wonder can i can i can i do this yeah <laughs> you know just take for instance i went from london to minehead did a a, a gig there then minehead the next day to eastbourne and then eastbourne um train to london and then here i am um it's it's quite Hard <laughs> to yeah. you know to to get yourself around to play for two hours on the stage. It's very hard, and
0: it's getting harder.
2: Um, so I'm I'm planning next year now to make it a little bit easier.
0: <laughs> yeah. Do you consider yourself a recovering alcoholic, or is it? Do you feel like you just had a stage where your self control wasn't what it should have been? Is that like an? Ongoing... I think
2: the latter, Yeah. I mean. Uh, I did fall into the rabbit hole, as you say, and I went to, I got this opportunity
0: to go
2: to Malibu for rehab for two weeks, um, and it ended up four months later, I got released. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I think I found myself back to being less again, and of course, I have a drink right now and again, but it's it's not that kind of, every day I've got to fight against alcohol or something like that. It's just, um, most of the time I need to be completely complementous because I've got a lot of things to do.
0: I just want to ask you, rollers aside, who do you think's the greatest Scottish band aside from the rollers?
2: I'm not sure, but um, I do like Simple Minds. <laughs> yeah, they're great. Yeah. Um, um, Donovan, back in the day. Yeah. Is he Scottish? <laughs> <laughs> I think he is. <laughs> I think he is. I'm not sure. But, um, you know, there's a lot of great bands that have come out of Scotland, yeah.
0: Did you like the Blue but, Nile? You were the Blue Nile? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I've heard of them.
0: Yeah, wonderful band.
2: I like I like bands who you can feel their energy, if you know what I mean. Like, you know, when you watch them even. I mean, it's like when I first... Well, I was in Canada, yonks ago, and I, I was watching the TV, and a song came on, and it was Radiohead, and I could feel that it, there was a energy there that something I could connect with so yeah I started to listen to lots of that and you know yeah I just I do I do even when I was um in the rollers used to listen to Pink Floyd's Led Zeppelin I mean I stood in a queue for two two days and two nights and I had my mum and dad bring me up uh, food so I could get the front middle row to watch Led Zeppelin at the King's Hall Theater in Edinburgh yeah. You know, I was a long hair down my shoulders and I was a, a nutter for all the heavy metal stuff. So yeah, I, I do like I just love music, it's great.
0: Yeah. This has been fun. Listen, I hope um I hope your tour goes really well, mate. And uh thank you so much for talking. And um
2: Don't worry, anytime you got my number.
0: I have, <laughs> thank you. Look after yourself, mate.
2: Take care.
0: All right man, bye. thanks as always this month to our guests whose opinions are their own thanks also to jay taylor emma at partisan sharon chevin and sam draper until next time